So this afternoon, what I'd like to reflect upon is the cultivation of the Brahma-viharas, or the noble abidings, as pathways of awakening, as pathways of insight. I think there's a, a great tendency in, in the sort of world of the Dharma to be uh, rather fragmented in the way that we view the pathways of development, often seeing them as very separated and very distinct, that over here we have Vipassana, and over here we have Samatha, and over here we have the Brahma-Viharas. Whereas I, I think a kind of a more skillful and a more accurate way of approaching these different pathways is actually to appreciate their interwoven nature and really how the Buddha really had a very kind of central pathway that, that kind of traversed all of these distinctions. And that very central pathway was the commitment to understanding and ending dukkha. And the other part of that commitment of the Buddha was actually the the liberation of the heart, the unshakable liberation of the heart. And in that, that centralized pathway, any one of these approaches, whether it's samatha or insight practice or the Brahma-viharas, can all be approached as pathways of awakening, pathways of liberation, which is not how we've always inherited the Brahma-viharas, the unshakable qualities of metta of compassion and joy and equanimity. I think we've often inherited them as a kind of side dish, you know, something on the, the periphery of the main event, you know, that the main event is, is insight and, you know, throw in a little Brahma-viharas here and there to make you feel all right <laughs> in the arduousness of the journey. This is not, in my understanding, how the Buddha originally taught these qualities. This happened much, you know, some more than 1,000 years after the Buddha's death, when, you know, there was an endeavor to codify the teachings. And in that endeavor to codify the teachings through the Vasudhimaga, the Brahma-viharas ended up in the concentration section, rather strangely which is where they've lived ever since and how they've often been taught, actually, as concentration practices, you know, the endless repetition of phrases, rather than as pathways of awakening, pathways of insight, pathways of investigation. In the Dhammapada, the, the Buddha said, he says, one who dwells in metta with confidence in the Buddhist teaching attains the peaceful state, nibbana, the blissful cessation of conditioning. The one who abides in metta with confidence in the Buddha's teaching of liberation attains the peaceful state, nibbana, awakening, the blissful cessation of conditioning. I don't know if any of you recollect that some years ago, uh, plane crashed in the Hudson River in New York, and it was one of those rather unusual plane crashes where everybody survived. And afterwards, they did a kind of like an autopsy on people's reactions 
in the aftermath of the plane crash. And this is not, not in any way pejorative, because I'm sure we could see ourselves in any one of these three reactions. And they identified three primary reactions to the crash. And one of them was to be the people who were frozen in terror, just simply frozen, not able to act. Uh, another primary reaction was, you know, head for the exit door as quickly as I can and stampede over the old and the frail and the, the vulnerable, you know, and get me out of here first. And the third primary reaction was those who went carefully up the aisle of the plane to the exit doors, helping those who were unable to help themselves to the exit until everybody was out. I'm sure we would all like to put ourselves in that third category. And the reality is we, we actually probably don't actually know what our would reaction would actually be in that moment. My own sense is that in genuinely training the heart deeply, in inclining the heart deeply to abide in the Brahma-viharas, we're possibly more likely to be that third kind of person. So the Buddha took these qualities out of the realm of being certain states. The Buddha took these qualities of metta, compassion, joy, and equanimity as ways of being in this world. In fact, he describes them as the most noble way of being in this world. He describes the possibility of them being unshakable, unshakable interwoven and unshakable. And he speaks of these abidings, this capacity to abide in this unshakable way, as an outcome of very deep understanding, very profound insight into what actually gets in the way of the Brahma Viharas. These qualities are very, very much interwoven. Sometimes in the, in, the, in the discourses, they're described as a kind of mindfulness, a quality of sati, a kind of mindfulness, a way of being present, whether standing, sitting, walking, or lying down, the source of all of our actions, all of our thoughts, all of our choices. Perhaps what becomes somewhat evident to us that in times of our greatest distress and difficulty in life, our greatest companions and refuges would be the Brahma-viharas. It's perhaps also sometimes obvious to us that in times of greatest distress, the first qualities seemingly to disappear or feel to be very elusive are the qualities of kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Now, the great genius of the Buddha, as we know, is, is to actually build upon what we have already glimpsed in some way in our life, what we already know on some level in our life. Rather than importing exotic concepts or exotic states, he said that these qualities are seeds of potential that live in every human heart, in every human mind, that await for their training, their cultivation, their development. 
And we see that these qualities are not completely strangers to any of us. All of us probably have glimpsed moments of unhesitating friendliness and kindness, received those gestures from others, and in our own lives felt those moments of unhesitating friendliness and kindness towards others and towards ourselves. Probably all of us in our lives have glimpsed moments of, of unhesitating, uncontrived compassion. Perhaps we've received that compassionate presence or gesture from another in times when we were most in need. And perhaps we've found ourselves reaching out to another in distress with that same unhesitating sense of care and holding and, and accommodating. Joy, probably, maybe we don't have as much joy as we think we would like to have. But again, it's, it's not a stranger and sometimes it even takes us by surprise, doesn't it? That we can be feeling quite, quite sort of contracted or a bit, bit downcast, you know. We, we go outside and, you know, suddenly the bunny hops across the lawn, you know, and there's this, just this moment of, ah, of joy, of the heart being gladdened, you know, of a kind of smile in the heart. We sometimes also surprise ourselves by moments of equanimity where we do find a ground of stillness to rest upon in the midst of extremes, in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of chaos, that suddenly we discover we have within ourselves this capacity to be still, to listen, and to be poised. Uh, so what the Buddha suggested is, is that these moments really don't have to be accidents. They don't have to be episodic. You know, we don't have to go through life with episodic friendliness or episodic compassion. That actually these qualities, as much as any other qualities, such as mindfulness or attentiveness, are qualities that are developed, they are nurtured, they are cultivated, they're brought to fruition, and they are abidings, places where we dwell. It's interesting, even the Pali phrase, the Brahma-Vahara, you know, it means that the abiding place or the home of the noble ones. And Vahara means the place where we live, the place where we dwell. The home, the abiding place of the noble ones. Now, the way often many people, you know, and, and actually in, in Western practice, of course, it's, it's meta practice has been given the, the primary focus. Compassion, perhaps a little bit more, and increasingly more. Joy and equanimity, not so much, you know. We don't really often talk about them as pathways of cultivation or pathways of practice or pathways that you could dedicate yourself to over prolonged periods of time and bring to fruition. But the, the Buddha spoke about all of them in that context. Now, the way often we have inherited metta practice has been more primarily as a concentration practice, where, as you know, we, we choose a few single simple phrases and we repeat them pretty consistently and pretty constantly. It's, it kind of grounds the mind. And in this sense, it is, it does have that element of samatha, it has that element of collectedness, it has that element of concentration, you know, because the, the mind gets very co-opted into the phrases and into the words. 
And there is a value in practicing metta in that way because certainly one of the effects of practicing metta in that way is to really guard the mind from obsession, to protect the mind from rumination, simply because in those moments when the great storms are happening of obsession or rumination, we come to appreciate that we're actually not going to be thinking two thoughts at one time. And it's far more helpful to us to intentionally place our attention in a thought, which the metaphrase is, that is actually conducive to our well-being than obsession or rumination or preoccupation. But personally, I, I find that there's far more, it's far more interesting for me, in any case, to, to actually look at, at how these practices are insight practices, how they actually really lead to liberation which is mostly what I want to reflect on a little bit this afternoon. And I think it is very important to acknowledge the interwoven nature of these qualities. You know, they're not standalone qualities. Um, they are all part of one, one landscape, one abiding. You know, they are all co-joined and are nurtured together. We're very aware that we can't contrive these qualities. You know, if you've ever seen anyone trying to contrive meta, it's kind of apparent, isn't it? You know, if you've ever got a nasty note signed meta, you know, <laughs> and, you know and you can sort of hear the person's gritted teeth, you know, why don't you stop being so restless, you know, with meta, you know. We can't contrive metta, we can't contrive compassion, we can't contrive joy or equanimity. But we can learn to nurture those seeds of potentiality within us. I just want to read something about their interwoven nature. One phrase uh, some of you will be familiar with, it comes from a teacher called Longchimpa. He says, out of the soil of friendliness grows the beautiful bloom of compassion, watered by the tears of joy and sheltered beneath the cool shade of the tree of equanimity. But more fulsomely, it said that metta gives to equanimity its boundless nature. Compassion guards equanimity from falling into indifference. Equanimity gives selflessness to metta gives patience, courage, and fearlessness to compassion. Equanimity guards joy from sentimentality. It brings all of the noble qualities of the heart together in freedom. Now, it's no surprise to me that the, the ordering in which we often hear the Brahma-Viharas of metta, compassion, joy, and equanimity. But I think there's also a, a step before that ordering, and that is mindfulness. You know, because I, I see this continuum that first, mindfulness or sati truly illuminates the world of our experience. Metta teaches us to befriend our world of experience, to stand near to it. You know, mindfulness is never attitudinally neutral. In fact, the Buddha said, for any deepening in meditative pathways at all requires an attitude and a ground of metta. So mindfulness turns towards our world of experience, both inwardly and outwardly. 
Metta establishes a relational way of being with that world of experience that is imbued with sensitivity, with concern, with care, with friendliness, with kindness. Compassion allows us to, to really meet the difficult. Joy is needed um, to replenish ourselves inwardly particularly when we are faced in our lives or in ourselves with, you know, a, a sort of a continuum of difficulty or pain. Joy is easily forgotten, but joy is what replenishes us, it restores us, it renews our commitment to, to compassion. And equanimity in the Buddhist teaching is often used interchangeably with nibbana, with awakening. You know, although there's different dimensions of equanimity, it's often equated with nibbana. So I want to look at the insight dimensions of these qualities and to reflect first upon metta. Um, and many of you have heard me say this many times, but, you know, there's certain words I would love to be able to erase from the meditator's uh, dictionary, but it's too late. Um, mindfulness is one of them. <laughs> Meditation is another, um, because it so inaccurately describes what the Buddha was talking about. And loving kindness is the third that I would really love to see relinquished, but it's probably too late. The word metta comes from the Pali of Maitri, to befriend, which has an earlier root which means to grow fat with kindness, to grow fat with kindness. So we see, why did the Buddha put so much emphasis upon metta? You know, first of all, he described it as being the root and the base of all healthy societies, of all healthy communities, um, of all healthy ways of being together, of all healthy um, relational ways of being with our friends, our loved ones, our, our enemies, and our, our, ourselves. He says metta is actually what is a guardian of the world. That metta is a guardian of the heart. And that it is the foundation of all deepening, of all respect, of all safety, of all protection, of widening the circle of our concern beyond just the vocabulary and the language of me and I, that it's actually what softens the mind. It makes the heart malleable. It makes us responsive. It sensitizes us. It allows us to be close equally to all experience, to all events. So when the Buddha speaks about metta, this quality of befriending, you know, the reason why I, I'm not so fond of the phrase loving-kindness is that it's, it's so suggestive of a kind of state, whereas the Pali of metta is very much a verb, it's a way of relating, it's about befriending the moment, befriending the moment. So what is it an antidote to? Well, perhaps this is obvious to you. Metta, metta as a practice of awakening, as an insight practice, is primarily concerned with the uprooting of ill will, the uprooting of aversion in all its forms. 
you know, the Buddha is so recognized in looking at his own mind, looking at his own world, looking at the world around him. He so recognized the toxic power of ill will to alienate, to, to separate, to fragment, to create fear, to create mistrust and suspicion, to harm, to injure, to create stereotypes, to reject and to disdain. And he, he said, you know, really there is no greater poison than the poison of ill will. And, you know, in the West Western culture, of course, you know, we actually are perhaps somewhat astounded at how generous it's possible to be with ill will. You know, we very rarely just compartmentalize ill will, do we? We see how it spills over into actions, words, choices, ways of relating. And we, we see the consequences. And the Buddha saw ill will as a kind of suffering not as something to be ashamed of, not as something to blame. But this is a mind, a heart, that's kind of lost its compass, lost its way of placing itself in the family of all beings, lost its way in actually appreciating the universal story of all beings, the longings for respect, the longings for safety, the longings for happiness and for peace. And he says metta is a way of, of, of reclaiming our bearings, reclaiming our compass of how we move through this world. Now, it's interesting, this kind of, these words, aversion or ill will, you know, because very often, you know, we're not necessarily in some huge, dramatic hatred storm, you know. But, you know, we might identify a number of moments in our day, in our lives, in our relationships, you know, where there's, irritation, frustration, disappointment, blame, shame, guilt, vexation. Um, I even think of fantasy sometimes as a kind of ill will because it's an abandonment of the moment. Um, to the more extreme forms, you know, where we have created the other and we see that this is really the effect of ill will, isn't it? Is that it creates the other, it creates the self in another that becomes the other. You know, and, and the other, you know, and the other and the self are so co-joined in their dance, aren't they? So co-joined in their dance. The kind of very notion of a reified self requires an other. It can never survives independently. It always requires an other to have some relationship to, and it's generally and often in the face of ill will. Because you notice, don't you, that when ill will is present in any form, do you notice how the volume of selfing gets turned right up? And the volume of the other gets turned right up? I am so disappointed in you. You know, and you, you know, you are so, you know, frustrating. I mean, the kind of volume of selfing and the volume of othering kind of grow and turn up simultaneously. And sometimes that other, of course, is external, and sometimes it's internal. Sometimes the other is the, the, the emotions we disdain, or the body pain, or the chronic illness, or the thoughts that we hate, or the, the impulses we feel ashamed of. We create the other in, inwardly. And again, this co-joined nature of how the selfing and the othering are so mutually supporting each other in this toxic dan dance of disdain and rejection. 
So this is where metta arrives. This is where metta arrives. Rather than being locked within these closed loops of, of antagonism and hostility and blame and shame, the Buddha suggested there's another pathway that we can follow, that we can learn to befriend. We can learn to befriend what is. Doesn't make the difficult necessarily disappear. Doesn't make the difficult person into someone lovely. But it does provide a fearless way of being in this world. A fearless way of turning towards life as it is, with an attitude of care and concern. And you notice when metta is present, when that attitude of, of being is present in our lives, how the volume of selfing gets turned right down. It's not an entirely an abandonment of using the phrases because it's inclining the mind towards friendliness, inclining the heart towards friendliness. It's truly a question of practice and dedication. You know, it just doesn't come accidentally. It's truly a question of training the heart to incline towards befriending. So the phrases are often quite useful allies because they are an articulation of intention. But they change a lot, you know. I mean, I always feel that metta is a very limited practice when it's only confined to the domain of human experience of friends and benefactors and, and enemies and neutral people. Because when we look at this kind of impulse of aversion or this habit of aversion, it's certainly not confined to human relationship, is it? I mean, we can, we can have lots of aversion, you know, towards the sound we don't like, towards the body sensation we don't like, to the illness we don't like, you know, to the thing, life not working out the way we want it to. I mean, aversion, you know, we, we <laughs> free range. <laughs> it's free range. And so the phrases really so need to adapt, you know. I mean, it just makes no sense, does it? You know, if you're struggling with a sore back and you're, you're visualizing a benefactor, you know, you may you be heat peaceful and you're completely ignoring what's going on for you. You know, metta needs to be relational to the whole world of events and experiences. Wherever any moment of aversion is a moment that's inviting of the cultivation of metta. I think that's so important to remember. Any moment of aversion is so inviting. It's, it's actually the most fertile moment to be cultivating metta because it is choosing where we make our home. It's choosing where we abide. And so the phrases change, you know, may I be peaceful in the midst of this. May I live with ease and kindness in the midst of this. May I be safe and well in the midst of this. Metta is the springboard for all of the other Brahma-Viharas, you know, and its fruition of the Brahma-Viharas is in equanimity. But metta is certainly the springboard for compassion. You know, and again, just to trace a continuum, you know, if mindfulness is turned towards what is in this moment, metta is to stand near to. Compassion is to allow that, that befriending then to expand, to embrace the world of the difficult, the anguished, the tormented, the suffering, the painful. That this is worthy of of compassion. And it, it's, it's, it's important to, to sense in, in traditional Buddhist teaching how compassion has these two elements of empathy 
That's uh, anukampa, the heart that can tremble, quiver in the face of suffering, and the element of karuna, of then translating that trembling into a commitment to relieve pain and distress wherever it is possible to do this. You know, I, I think in, in often in our minds we, we are so shaken by suffering that we, we quite forget the trembling part or we skip over it and we move into karuna, how do I bring this suffering to an end? But without the empathy, that often, how do I bring this suffering to an end, often leads into its near enemy of how do I fix this? You know, how do I make this go away? Rather than how do I respond, whether it is with a more active care, or whether it, all that can be offered is the stillness. I think to really understand this Brahma-Vahara of, of compassion is, is, is really to, to look very honestly at our own relationship to dukkha. You know, because I, I've seen, what I see is that, uh, you know, my sense is that our relationship to dukkha in all its, all its spectrum whether it's just the pain of pain or the pain that comes with change and instability or whether it's the pain that comes with all of our second arrows, that our relationship to dukkha really comes to define how we live our life and who we believe ourselves to be as a human being. You know, I really see that if we're afraid of dukkha, you know, or, or deny it or, or abandon it or turn away from it, that often our life really becomes very agitated in that denial. You know, all the strategies we use to get away from the painful and the difficult, all the strategies we use to rearrange the conditions of our life so we're protected as much as we can be from the painful. How much, how much you know, denial there is of aging or illness or death or loss or the simple pains of being a human being. And then in that life of agitation, we come to define ourselves really as a person who is, you know, somehow incapable or, or unable to meet life as it is in its fullness, you know, the lovely and the difficult. I mean, to see that if we find in ourselves that capacity to, to meet suffering, to meet dukkha, to meet the painful, it actually is a life of much more calm. It's a life of much more grace. It's a life of inclusivity. It's a life in which the, the language of I and you gets really reduced. We very much move into the language of us, you know, the universal story. How the agitation falls away and the responsiveness grows, our capacity to respond grows, whether it's with stillness or with action and how we don't define ourselves by, by limitation. You know, and, and the Buddha so firmly placed compassion, didn't he, in, in this teaching really as the, the forefront of everything that we do in this path. Our primary motivation, widening the circle of concern, including ourselves, our own well-being and our own life in that circle of concern, but widening the circle of concern to include all beings in that wish for their wellness, a wish for their safety, even and acting as if it's possible even to protect and be a guardian of all beings, even as we know that it's not possible to do so. 
The third dimension of, of the Brahma Viharas is, is joy. Um, and there's two insight dimensions to, to joy, the cultivation of joy. One of it is, is very much an antidote to greed. It's very much an antidote to a sense of insufficiency, sense of lack or deficit. The Buddha taught so much about this capacity to abide in joy in the midst of affliction, in the midst of misery, in the midst of difficulty, to learn to abide in joy. So its first insight element is really seeing that when we, we feel dispossessed of joy, how we replace that or how we try to fill that sense of lack with the very poor cousin of sensory gratification or sensory pleasure. And the Buddha says, you know, that this, this sense of insufficiency of not having enough, not being enough, is one of the primary causes, sources of triggers of greed. The greed, again, that so poisons the world. In the second dimension of insight that the cultivation of joy is, is really concerned with is understanding this, this whole concept or, or, or view of mana or the conceit of self, the way that we position ourselves in relationship to other selves as being either inferior to another or superior to another or the same as. We can see it's really very difficult to really celebrate the happiness and the well-being of others if we have somehow placed ourselves relationally as being inferior to them. Instead, we feel envy or resentment. In a, um, if we feel superior to someone, we often feel that they don't actually deserve much happiness, you know. Um, so, so joy is really this pathway of investigation. And, and we see, you know, it's very obvious that we can't contrive joy. But we certainly learn to make room for it. You know, as a pathway of cultivation, we learn to make room for it. And joy is so necessary to balance compassion. You know, I think when, for example, people who are really in, in professions, you know, where they're really caring for others, um, looking after others, you know, sometimes people speak about compassion fatigue. And I think that's an incorrect way of, of phrasing what happens. It's just that eventually, it, through the ongoing exposure to suffering, I think uh, there, there can be an energy exhaustion and a forgetfulness about intention. And it's so necessary to make that room for joy, to have that restoration inwardly, that renewal inwardly, that sense of replenishing the heart. And interestingly enough, you know, joy, making room for joy, we discover actually it's not always that far away from us. You know, we, we can be in the midst of some great contractedness and we... We, we're suddenly touched by someone opening a door for us. You know, we feel a, a sense of appreciation, a thank you. You know, I often think of joy as the big thank you. You know, we step outside and we see the silhouette of the tree against the sky, you know, or we hear the sound of the bird and ah, joy for its cultivation means the sensitivity to be touched sensitivity to be touched. It doesn't mean going out and pursuing highs, relation. It's cultivating the sensitivity to be 
touched, which is so deeply important. Some of you are familiar with these phrases, but there's a kind of uh, Sri Lankan blessing that the monks and nuns used to bring into the villages of Sri Lanka as they went on their begging rounds. And one of one of them was a round appreciative joy, and and it goes something like how how wonderful you are that you're here, how wonderful it is that you are here. I delight in your being. May your happiness deepen and your good fortune continue. And I, I used to think this was a bit sentimental, really, you know. But then I, I really considered, gosh, how would my life be if if I met everyone who came into my world with that sense? How wonderful you are! It, it is that you're here. You know, I delight in your being. You know, may your happiness continue and your good for deepen and your good fortune continue. You know, it, you know, it's interesting to experiment with that just on a daily basis. What it actually feels like to actually greet everybody who comes into your life in that way. You know, and instead of all the narratives, you know, I'm not quite sure you deserve to be here, you know, and I'm not quite sure you're, ha- I'm, may your happiness deepen, you know, and you know, I'm not quite convinced I delight in your being. Uh, you know, how often we're much more in this negotiated relationship, isn't it? And I thought, this is really a useful experiment, you know, the person behind the checkout at the supermarket, you know, uh, uh, you know, all of these people come in and out of your day, often we see them as functions, you know, and to actually, to really have a sense of how appreciative joy brings people into visibility. Brings people into visibility. And then, even more interesting, is to turn those phrases towards yourself and see how that feels. How wonderful I am in my being. I delight that I'm here. You know, may my happiness deepen and my good fortune continue. I mean, how does that land with you? Do you get that little, <clears throat> you know, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> you know, it doesn't sit really well, you know. I'm not really sure about that. And yet, somehow, just the simplicity of it, just the simplicity of it, that kind of offering of that inner appreciation, you know. And it's not veering into sentimentality. It's not veering into pretending. But it actually also brings us into visibility in our own mindfulness, in our own sphere of attentiveness. Equanimity as an insight practice is concerned with really a whole number of domains. I mean, ultimately, equanimity is really, when it's equated with nibbana, it is really about blowing out the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion. Because it's when we're in the midst of those fires that we are, lose balance, isn't it? When I want something that's not here, when I want to get rid of something that's not here, that is here, you know, when I'm just lost in confusion, aren't these all the moments that we just get lose balance, lose that sense of poise, of being for and against, of pursuing, avoiding, you know? And it's really so important to see how, you know, I mean, these are big words, greed, hatred, and delusion, but please see them as spectrum words. But it's so interesting if we look at our minds when they're, they're swaying in extremes or, or feeling out of balance, how implicated is some element of greed, hatred, and delusion? So in the same, you know, equanimity, is, this is its deepest commitment, is actually cooling these fires. 
It's so equanimity is also concerned that there, there's other steps in equanimity. Equanimity is about acknowledging the limits of our ability to control the world of conditions. You know, we're not helpless in this life, but there's a huge world of conditions, isn't there, that we just can't control. You know, whether the sun shines or the rain falls, whether the car starts or breaks down, you know, whether people are kind to us or not kind to us, you know, whether we get what we want or don't get what we want. I mean, there's so many conditions in this life, isn't there, that are just completely out of our control. And that is so hard to accept, you know? And that's actually where equanimity is, is often so elusive, you know, because somehow we have this idea we just haven't tried hard enough to control the world of conditions, you know? We should just strive a little bit harder, you know? And then we'll get it right. You know, and then we'll get it right, and then we'll only have nice people and eternal sunshine, you know, and a body that never hurts and a mind that's always cooperative and live happily ever after. This is not how it works. You know, and it's just so difficult for us to accept that there are limits to our power to control the world of conditions. And yet as long as we don't accept that, we are always lost in this in this state of either being for and against, pushing away approaching, trying to get, trying to get rid of, trying to fix, trying to solve. Equanimity is not about passivity, really bearing that in mind. The Buddha was fully engaged with this world in, in uprooting suffering. Equanimity is not about passivity. It is about no longer being caught or tied by the, that, that those winds, those impulses of greed, hatred, and delusion. And this applies to every area of our life, the things that we cannot control. You know, whether it's the circumstances of the weather, or and particularly our relationships. You know, wouldn't it be nice to only have lovely people? You know, wouldn't it be wonderful only to have, you know, supporters and fans and advocates and you know, amazingly easy relationships and never be disappointed, you know. I, and I often, some of you may get them too, and I hope, I don't be insulted if you send these, please. You know, but sometimes I get these round-robin letters at Christmas time where people report on their year. And I read them, and it's only ever good news, you know. It's only, a, you know, people tell me about their fantastic vacations, how well their kids are doing, you know, they're happy in their job, you know. Uh, this and I beat them, and I think, hmm, somebody's got to manage the perfect life. You know, I, I never get the round-robin letter, you know, that says, you know, my kids are really doing badly at school, you know, and I hate my job, and my vacation was a total washout, you know. And, I, you know, I really hate... I never get those letters, you know. And we see how much that impulse is in us, isn't it, to, to be the kind of person who has only certain kinds of experiences, only pleasant, lovely, supportive experiences and not to be the kind of person where difficult things happen and we experience difficult situations. And we, we see this more, more acutely, more poignantly, I think, in, in rela our, our relationships and anywhere. And we can be so shattered both by love and by hate. Yeah. Um, and we, we simply don't always acknowledge that we, we simply cannot control the course of another person's heart and mind. Just as another person really can't change the course of our 
heart and mind for us. That this really does lie only in our hands. Lies only in our hands. I was a student, and I've told this story a number of times. You know, he told me of watching his son kind of sink into heroin addiction and did everything that a lovely, loving parent could do to help his son, and all of it was to no avail. You know, none of it helped at all, and his son became more and more ill. And he told me about going to an art gallery and seeing a painting of a woman standing on the banks of a river watching her child being swept away by the river, the current in the river. And in this painting, the woman had no arms. And he said it was such an epiphany moment for him, such a, a, in a way, a sad, deeply sad, but deeply true and liberating moment to actually be able to deeply acknowledge that as much as he cared for another, his son, that he couldn't actually change the course of his mind course of his heart and he realized you know this is the same for me you know no matter how much someone loves me they're actually not going to change the course of my heart and mind that this is only something in my hands to do so and I think the Brahma Viharas really point us in that direction and in the cultivation of these qualities truly point us in that direction this transformation, this possibility of these qualities being unshakable and being liberating and truly seeing the end of, of greed, hatred and delusion because the Brahma Viharas are really dedicated to their uprooting, truly dedicated to their uprooting and that leaves no vacuum behind. You know, often when we hear about the liberated heart or the awakened heart, you know, it's, it's often couched in kind of negatives, you know, the cessation of greed, sensation of hatred. Well, what is that landscape? And, and the Buddha speaks about the landscape of, of the liberated heart as really being the fruition and the embodiment of these qualities of metta, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Our, our deepest allies and seeds of potential that live within each of us. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.